Uh, reading from 1 Thessalonians 2.17, uh, 3.13. As for us, brothers and sisters, when for a short time we were made orphans by being separated from you, in person, not in heart, we longed with great eagerness to see you face to face. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul wanted to again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? It is not you. Yes, you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we decided to be left alone in, in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker, for God in proclaiming the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you for the sake of your faith, so that no one would be shaken by these persecutions. Indeed, you yourselves know this is what we are destined for. In fact, when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer persecution, so it turned out as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor had been in vain. Timothy has just now come to us from you and he has brought us the good news of your faith and love. He has told us also that you always remember us kindly and long to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, during all our distress and persecution, we have been encouraged about you through your faith. For we now live in you, sorry, if you continue to stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. If you've got your Bibles open at that passage, it um, might be worth keeping a, keeping a finger in it as we go through. Good. So, as I said, the topic for today is Christian friendship. So the first question, obviously, is what is friendship? Some dictionaries actually seem to find it quite hard to define. Um, I found a number which come up with a rather circular definition that friendship is the relationship between friends. Well, that doesn't really tell you anything. A rather more useful one I found was a close association between two people marked by feelings of care, respect, admiration, concern, or even love. An online search perhaps might find a few more practical definitions, though what's quite interesting is an awful lot of these come from sites that provide psychological therapies of some sort or are counseling services, which suggest that real friendship in the world is something which is very rare and hard to find. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy had a slightly different definition. 
which is a distinctively personal relationship that is grounded in a concern on the part of each friend for the welfare of the other, for the other's sake, and that involves some degree of intimacy, i.e. a sharing of your, your heart. 1 Thessalonians shows something of the feelings that Paul had for the Christians in Thessalonica, especially as he was separated from them and unable to visit. It lets us look at some of the aspects of Christian friendship and lets us consider how we could be better friends to our brothers and sisters within the church and, of course, to those around us, our neighbors, our work colleagues and others. Christian friendship isn't wildly different from friendship that you might have in the secular world. But between Christians, there is one very fundamental difference. A Christian friendship is based on a shared faith. It's based on a common savior and the fact that we have the same eternal destiny. A Christian friendship with a non-Christian, on the other hand, is us trying to reflect the love that Jesus had for the world to that individual. And we'll look at that in more depth. So let's start looking at this. Why should we seek to be friends? Well, firstly, because we're commanded to love one another. Jesus said, and come on, catch up. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Paul wrote to the Romans, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's in Romans 12. Peter wrote, now you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. And John put it, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's in 1 John 4.11. In fact, this command to love each other appears in the New Testament at least 16 times. If I'd had time to do a bit more sort of searching around, maybe there are more. And in addition to our fellow Christians, we're also commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus, in fact, called that the second greatest commandment. And in fact, when you look at what he said, when he was asked, the first greatest commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Loving our friends doesn't feature. Loving our neighbor does. And of course, Jesus gave us the ultimate example of friendship. In John 15, he reiterated the command to love each other as he had loved us. And he goes on to emphasize that love for friends is sacrificial. In verse 13, he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I've made known everything that I've heard from my father. And then, of course, Jesus demonstrated this in practice 
when he went to the cross for us to pay the penalty that we had earned for our sins. John, 1 John 4, 9 and 11. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, so also we ought to love one another. So the first question for us then is, do we feel concerned for other members of the church or for people outside the church that we meet? Paul was clearly concerned for the Thessalonians. He was aware they were facing persecution. After all, he'd just been thrown out of the town because of a near riot. He'd warned them this would happen. And in three, chapter 3, verse 5, he was worried what the consequences might be for them. When he could bear it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid somehow the tempter had tempted you and labor had been in vain. He also talks about being separated from them as being orphaned in chapter 2, verse 17. About longing with great eagerness to see them face to face. And if you look back into chapter 1, verse 8, he describes his deep care for them and that they had become very dear for, to him. But this isn't something just that Paul felt. We saw the story of David and Jonathan in the video. We saw how Jonathan and David became close friends. We can see that Jonathan was concerned for David. He looked out for him. He opposed his father on David's behalf. You can see that in, in the early part of 1 Samuel 19. And of course, Jonathan accepted that David was going to be king rather than himself. Jonathan's acceptance that David would be a next king is an example of the cost that can come with true friendship. He might have been the expected heir to the throne, but he accepted that God wanted David to be king instead and did what he could to make that happen. We all know that relationships come at a cost. Not necessarily a great cost, but when we put the other person in the relationship's needs and wants before our own, obviously we're not doing what we would want to do necessarily. And we see it in Jesus' life. He put our need before his right to authority and power in heaven. He gave up his life to restore the friendship with God that we had broken. Paul summed it up. God proves his love for, the, for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, mentions the cost he bore because of the, the big, try again, because of his friendship for the Thessalonians. After it left Thessalonica, he went to Berea. But trouble soon erupted there because the, as the Thessalonian Jews followed him. So Paul was sent away to Athens to keep him safe. And Silas and Timothy remained behind for a while. Yet when Silas and Timothy caught up with him, Paul sent them back to, Timothy, to Thessalonica to check up on the churches. It's possible he sent Silas to the other Macedonian churches as well. And, left, and that left Paul alone in Athens for a while, and then for a while in Corinth before they caught up with him. Concern for others is one thing, but concern that doesn't result in action raises questions about how real our concern is. If you think about James's discussion of faith and works in James 2, what did he say? 
If a brother or sister is naked, lacks daily bread, and one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet doesn't supply their, need, their bodily needs, what good is that? Why did the losing Silas and Tim, Timothy cost Paul? Well, firstly, he was left without his fellow workers in Christ. So everything that needed doing, everything that he was doing in his mission work, everything he needed to do to survive in a strange town, he had to do, whether that was earning money, as Roy reminded us a couple of weeks ago, the preaching and teaching, even down to the mundane things of actually buying and preparing food, potentially. And secondly, Paul was alone in a strange city. He had no one with whom he could share and pray about the work he was doing or about the concerns and issues he encountered. If you've ever been in a strange town on your own, you'll recognize it's a far less pleasant experience than if you're in the same place with a friend. If you travel for work, it's something you might have to experience because companies won't normally send more than one of you to any given place. But it's quite another to give up the company of your friends to ensure that other more distant friends are all right. But Paul imitated Christ. Jesus did more than give up companionship when he came to earth. He gave up his glory as the son of God and he lived and died as a man so that he reclaimed from death those of us God had chosen to be his friends. By the time Paul reached Corinth, and Kate read that for us, in a relatively short period, he'd been chased out of Philippi, having been severely beaten, Acts 16. He'd been forced to leave Thessalonica to protect Jason and the other believers from forfeiting the bail they'd had to post, Acts 17, verse 9. He'd been forced to flee from Berea because of the risk of more riots, and he'd been laughed out of Athens because they really couldn't get their head around resurrection of the dead, as, again, we saw in Acts 18. No matter how strong his faith was, undoubtedly he felt physically, mentally, and spiritually battered. That hadn't been a great experience. And no wonder he quite rightly saw Satan at work in the opposition he faced, which he mentioned in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. But when Timothy came back from Thessalonica, you can see the relief and delight in what he heard in 3, 6 to 9. By standing firm in their faith, by being seen as imitators of Paul, and even more importantly of Jesus, by the example they were giving to all the believers in the regions, the Thessalonians consoled Paul for all he had been through. His work had not been in vain. The work, the cost had been worth it. Now, I've seen some commentaries on this passage and then some sermons which describe, which basically take the title spiritual parenthood. And while it's true that Paul was, was the Thessalonian spiritual parent, this doesn't really describe the relationship we see here. A parent, parenting relationship tends to be somewhat more one way from the parent to the child. We can see in this that the consolation was two-way. While the news he received lifted Paul's spirits, Timothy had also lifted the Thessalonian spirit. He'd gone to them to strengthen and encourage them in their face, faith. Remember, they were new Christians facing persecution with a, with a set of leaders who were actually you know, just a little bit ahead of them in the, in the gospel. One of the charges that people say there are that Paul was refuting in the letter was that he was a coward, that he had abandoned the church in the face of trouble. 
And while these were false charges, and we can see Paul's defense against it, we all know when people throw mud, some of it sticks. There may have been people in the church who were beginning to believe that Paul had abandoned them when he didn't visit again. For them, and for all the others, Timothy arriving would have been a reassurance that they hadn't been forgotten, and even more so when they received Paul's letter sometime later. There's an old story you may have heard many years ago about a boy who called his girlfriend on the phone one day. And he was telling her about his love for her and extravagant claims, how he would swim the widest river to get to her. He would climb the highest mountain. He would cross the widest desert. And she sort of accepted this and then said, well, are you coming around on Saturday? Of course I'm coming around, as long as it's not raining. We look to our close friends to be committed to us, to be that we are a priority to them, that they will put us before other things. As a society, we're very action-focused, and often, nowadays, immediate action. We want immediate gratification, immediate solutions. But often for us, when we're faced with situations we can't do much about, the best thing we can do is consistently and fervently pray. Paul wasn't able to visit the Thessalonians. If he did, there were financial consequences for Jason. There were potential riots. There were risks to his safety but he can certainly pray for them. And he tells them that he gives thanks for them continually, not just in chapter three, verse nine, but in chapter one, verses two to three as well, that he continues to pray night and day, that he might be able to visit them, build them up further in their faith in verse 10. And then he writes down a specific prayer for them. He prays they will grow in abundant love for one another and for all men, for brother believers, and sister believers, and those who have yet to be saved. And he prays that God will continue to sanctify them, to make them more like Jesus, to make them holy both now and at the end of the world. Both topics that he's going to talk more about in the second part of his letter. So that's what Paul did. What about us? What should we take away from the passage? How does it apply to us today? None of us are Paul. Nor are we a struggling young church being persecuted for our faith by the government. Again, though, as Roy reminded us in, in the last sermon in this series, the, our circumstances in this country could change fairly easily and quickly if, if um, the wrong people got into power. Clearly, one of the messages that comes out of this, though, is that we should be good friends to the other members of the church. But we also need to recognize that as humans, we can't be really close friends with lots and lots of people. It, we just don't work that way. In fact, a gentleman by the name of Robert Dunbar, who is the director of the Institute of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology at Oxford University, and I would hate to say that in a hurry, has theorized there is actually a, a limit within the way our brains work to how many individuals we can maintain a meaningful social relationship with. There is some discussion among research people about how much, sort of between 100 and 250 seems to be the sort of numbers that are talked about, with 150 being the value that most people will use. It's called Dunbar's number, surprisingly. 
And the part of his evidence, if you look back in history, a village typically tended to be about that size right through the Dark Ages into the Middle Ages. Within this number, however, there are other subdivisions. We can have up to 50 good friends, give or take, 15 close friends, and just five intimate friends. Now, why do I say that? Well, firstly, we shouldn't feel guilty if we aren't, as the kids would say, BFF, best friends forever, with every single person in, in Amesbury Baptist Church. But we can be that best friend forever with a few of us. Between us, everybody in the church can have some really close Christian friends, someone we can rely on, someone who will be honest with us, someone who will point out when we're making mistakes. And of course, the other thing to remember is Dunbar notwithstanding, we may not be able to be close friends with everybody, but we most certainly can love everybody. We can love those we worship with as we've been commanded. We should also consider our friendships outside the church. In verse 12, Paul praised the Thessalonians would increase and abound in love for all men, not just Christians. And in Romans 10, Paul wrote, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how can they believe, or how can they call on the one they haven't believed in? How can they believe in the one who they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can someone preach unless they're sent? Now, he's thinking more, obviously, about a mission-type situation. But we are sent out from this building as missionaries. We are witnesses to Jesus wherever we go. A friend is someone who will try to meet your needs. What do our neighbors, our colleagues at work, the people who are living around us, the people who are driving and walking past this building right now, what do they need most of all? They need Jesus. But how can we tell them the good news if we don't have a relationship with them? If we haven't earned the right to talk to them by being a good friend to them? If our friendship with them doesn't show Jesus' love, if our relationship with them is no different than that of all the other people in our street or our workplace, why should they be interested in what we have to say? So I want to look at the headings we've used today and just think how we could apply them to our friends in church and to friends outside. Where, um, perhaps the question to ask ourselves is, are we actually friends in the way these describe? And let's also remember how many of these Jesus demonstrated in his life and his death for us. So, do we have a real concern for our friends and especially their spiritual well-being? Getting carried away. Are we willing to be open about our spiritual state with our friends in the church? Do we want the best for our friends? Do we want them to be the best that they can be? Are we prepared to make sacrifices to support our friends? Do we put other people before ourselves? Are we prepared to give other people the opportunity to grow in their faith and their service at a cost to us? And consolation. Are we willing to put an arm around a friend who is suffering? Well, possibly not at the moment, just given Roy's, uh, Roy's notice. But, but to be there for people who are in trouble. Do we ever tell people in the church how much they mean to us or when their service has touched us 
or met our needs at that time? And commitment. Do we put being together with our friends high on our priorities, coming to church even when it is raining? Are we prepared to pray continually for our friends? Are we prepared to go the extra mile for a friend, no matter the cost? And most of all, are we committed to being a loving Christian friend to those who need Jesus, to show them the same love that took him to the cross? Jesus loved us enough to come and die in the most shameful manner to pay the penalty we had earned. He cared for his disciples and looked after them. When he was praying just before he went, uh, just before he went to Gethsemane in John 17, he said, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None have been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. He loves us even when we let him down. Peter denied him three times, but Jesus still brought him back to be a leader in the early church, John 21. Jesus didn't leave us alone. He sent the Holy Spirit to be with us always. John 14, 15 to 18, 15, 26, 16, 7 to 15. You can read it all in there. Our calling as Christians is to become like Jesus. We are his body here on earth, his hands and feet to reach the world, to proclaim the gospel. We look after our physical bodies. We tend parts that get hurt. We take steps to stop parts getting hurt. We take aspirin when we've got a headache. How much more should we be looking after other parts of Christ's body? The men and women sat around us, the children upstairs. Jesus commanded us to love one another and to love our neighbors as ourselves. How much practical evidence of that love is visible in our lives today? 